you know, one of the things that the Bible tells us that we're supposed to do in church is it says, um, don't neglect the public reading of Scripture and exhortation and teaching. And, uh, you know, exhortation and teaching, that's encouraging people to obey the Bible. Teaching is explaining what is in the Bible. But the perfect words that happen every single Sunday morning are the words that we actually read out of the Bible. That's God's Word. That is the most important thing that happens in a, in a Sunday morning. So, Eddie, thank you for doing that. And uh, we're going to be explaining and encouraging obedience to God's Word. Now, last uh, time we talked about this story, we were talking about Noah and just what an inspiring story of righteousness. And when we read this account, we find out that the whole world is wicked except for Noah. And sometimes we can feel overwhelmed. We can feel like there's so much evil around us. You know, kids can go off to Sunday school, or I'm sorry, like regular, not, hopefully not Sunday school. They run off to school, and they live in such a sinful world, and we could just feel like, man, it is impossible to live in our culture and to live a life of righteousness and faithfulness and to actually honor and obey God. And i got to tell you, I know so many people who will say, I'm a Christian, but then when they live their life, they live in the same wicked way that the rest of the world lives. They read things in the Bible and go, oh yeah, you know what God says about that, that's for a different time and different people, but for us, you know, we just kind of live like the world. And it is amazing how it can be acceptable for a person who calls themselves a Christian to just live like the world. And one of the things that we are inspired by as we look at the life of Noah is that he was a faithful man. He was righteous, even though everyone else on earth was wicked. And what that reminds us is that for us to live a life that honors the Lord is not only possible, it is so much easier than it was for Noah. So we're inspired by that. But one of the things that we're going to be considering today is we looked at Noah's life and what an inspiring story that was. But one of the things that we're going to notice today is that we read the rest of the story about Noah and the ark, and we find out that at a certain point, the door of the ark closed. And um, that is a great story of God's blessing and God's protection and God's encouragement. But it is also a story of God's judgment on people who had an opportunity to enter a relationship with God and they didn't do it. And I think that this story, along with many stories in the Bible, when we think about it, and by the way, we need to remember that this is a real true story. As, as Eddie read those details and as we read some of the details um, in our story, as we'll do that later uh, in this service, we need to remember that things happened exactly the way it says it happened. And last time we were together, we talked about the four-minute mile. And how everybody thought it was impossible. Anybody who broke the four-minute mile, they would die running. Until the first person broke the four-minute mile. And all of a sudden, everybody realized, no, this is possible. And then just tons of people, thousands of people have broken the four-minute mile since then. Because it was proof that it, it's real and it could happen. And as we read these stories, we need to remember that this is real. That it really happened. And one of Satan's lies is to encourage people and tell people that when you read this, these are just illustrative stories for us to learn from. No, that is not true. This is a real account 
of God working in the world and working in the lives of real people just like you and me. And one of the things that I think about in this story, as well as many other stories, are how often uh, we as people can look around at a sinful world, we can look around at the lies that Satan tells, all the things that God says, oh, this is great, you should live for this, these should be your priorities. And we look around and we see wicked, sinful people who seem to be doing really well. And we just think, man, you know... I mean, I am a Christian, but if I could trade places with, with Bill Gates, I would trade places with him. I mean, have you ever had a thought like that? Have you ever, you know, I was thinking about the Super Bowl coming up, and I, I joked around about Taylor Swift's team was going to go up against. Anyway, um, you know, but just thinking about that, do you have any idea how many people look around the world and think, man, if I could push a button and be Taylor Swift, I'd want to do that? And one of the things that we need to remember is that this is a story about a world of people who loved their life. They loved their life of wickedness. And it's not like in Noah's day it was like this really bad, evil thing. In Noah's day, it was just like it is today. And there was Noah and his family loving and honoring God, and there was everybody else on earth pursuing happiness, pursuing fulfillment, exactly like people do today. People just like Bill Gates. People just like Taylor Swift. People just like a world of people who are rich, who pursue wicked things, or maybe who even aren't rich, but they just pursue vengeance, violence. Um, when you look at the Middle East, you know we looked at uh, the fact that, that Hamas has named themselves after this story. It actually says that in the days of Noah that the earth was filled with violence. And the Hebrew word for violence is Hamas. And, and we look at the way that lives its way out, and you want to know something? People pursuing the wickedness, uh, the, you know, Hamas, as they pursue wickedness, they're not thinking to themselves, oh, I'm really bad, and all these things I'm doing are really bad. They feel good about it. They celebrate it. It is exciting and encouraging to them, just like sin is in the world. And one of the things that can happen is as we look around the world, we can look at sinful, wicked people. And, and sometimes it looks good. You know, the Bible talks about how people see wickedness and it's attractive and it appeals to their flesh and bad things like kind of seem good. You know, Psalm 78 is a story about Asaph. And he just says, you know, I looked around at all the wicked people and they just seemed to be so prosperous and everything just seemed to be going so well for them. And he said, I was almost ruined because when I looked around at sin, it was attractive. You know, we can read the story of Noah, and we can forget that everybody on earth was doing what they wanted to do. They were pursuing what seemed fun, what seemed good, what seemed satisfying and fulfilling. That is what the entire world was pursuing. The entire world was not getting up and thinking, oh, I want to be a really bad person. The entire world was getting up every morning and saying, I'm going to do whatever feels good to me. I'm going to do whatever feels right to me. And that was the world. And then God sent Noah, this faithful, righteous man. 
And the Bible tells us that for 120 years, he preached righteousness. And we're going to actually read about what happened when everybody said, yeah, no, I hear what you have to say, but I think the things I'm pursuing are better. And we're going to see what happened there. You know, one of the things I love about this story is in Genesis chapter 6, which was what we looked at last time, God said what he was going to do. And one of the things I like about today in Genesis 7 and 8 is we're going to actually read. <laughs> we're going to find out, well, what did God do? And, you know, for you and me, we read this story from beginning to end in about, like, 10 minutes. You read the whole story. But what we need to remember is that this took place over a, a massive amount of time. I mean, Noah was preaching for 120 years. It took him 120 years to build the ark. And then he went into the ark, and it's raining, and all the stuff is going on. And we read this story in a very short time. But do you think Noah, um, as he was building the, ever, the ark, ever thought to himself, is God actually going to do all the stuff that he said he's going to do? I mean, I'm sure that Noah was being marked, mocked and everybody thought he was a fool for building a boat probably where, around where there's no water. He's building a boat. It's like, you crazy person, what are you doing? And in all that time, he's building it. And I wonder if he wondered, is God actually going to do any of this stuff that he said he's going to do? And I wonder when he got on the boat, and when the rain, when it started raining, okay, that's the first thing God did. He said it was going to rain, and now there's water everywhere. You, you know, we'll read it in the story, but you know Noah was in the, in the boat for a week before, <laughs> before anything happened. And uh, so he's sitting in there, although he's already seen the miracles, right? Because God is already bringing the animals into the ark. You know, no, people, when people criticize this story, they say all kinds of things like, how did Noah round up all the animals? Well, guess what? He didn't round any of them up. God rounded them all up. And God brought them all onto the boat. So Noah's seeing that happen. And, uh, but Noah also had work to do, right? We talked about this last time. God's going to bring the animals, but Noah had to go build the boat. He had to go gather up all the food. He had to gather up all the water. He had to put it on the boat. So Noah's obeying God, and he's doing these things. But there's things that God is doing. And God's bringing all the animals. And then the door closes. God puts Noah on the ark, and... And he closes the door and he closes in all the animals and then they just sit there for a week and nothing happens. And then all of a sudden, um, the flood happens and everybody's drowned. And so we're going to look at three things that are important this morning. One, I do want to look at some, some details, some facts about this story. And so we're going to consider some facts and uh, we'll do some math. I did lots of math this week about square footage, <laughs> cubic feet. Um, I figured out how much space it takes to put a sheep. <laughs> I'm searching the internet for, for all this stuff. If, if I want to transport sheep on a train, how many sheep can I fit into this area? We're going to get to all those numbers and math that I did, and we're just going to think about the facts of Noah's Ark. And, um, and then we're going to talk about the fact that um, for some people, the door closed, and for them, it was too late. 
And we need to remember that in our life, uh, sometimes this applies to us. Sometimes things can be too late for us. And, um, and, and by the way, that's primarily true for non-Christians, that sometimes time's up, it's too late. God gives you an opportunity, people preach to you and you don't listen, and then the time's up. And uh, so for people in the story, it was too late. And then we're going to look at the fact that God preserved a spiritually faithful person. And when we're spiritually faithful, God can preserve us. In the, in the face of like just insane things that seem, seem impossible. And do you know why that is? Because nothing is impossible for God. And, and as we face things in our life and in our world, it actually is just like Noah. Uh, you will face things in your life. Uh, you will face challenges and difficulties. And you will feel like, well, I know what God wants me to do. But if I do what God wants me to do, I'm going to suffer. And guess what? That may be true. <laughs> Jesus actually promised that. But sometimes we feel like, you know, God, this is too big for you and you can't take care of this. And one of the things that comes out of the story of Noah is that we realize that there is nothing too big for God to do. And so when you feel anxiety and when you feel stress, you need to be a person who has done what Justin said you should do last week. <laughs> do you remember Justin's challenge? He, he said, um, spend, spend three minutes reading the Bible and, until you find something. Spend three minutes just thinking about it, just dwelling on it. And then spend three minutes praying that back to God. You know, if you're a person who's reading the Bible and who's approaching the Bible in that way, when you're facing your moment of anxiety and stress, you're gonna, your mind is going to go back to all these real-life stories. And you're going to think about how God has acted in the past, and you're going to know how God will act for you in your present and in your future. And that's why God's Word is so valuable. Um, you know, I was thinking as I read this week, just how many times in the Bible the phrase, um, seek the Lord, is repeated. You know, it's repeated over and over. Seek the Lord, seek the Lord, seek the Lord. And that's actually all of our jobs. And then I was thinking about all the passages in Scripture that talked about people who didn't seek the Lord, who heard, who were encouraged, who were told, God should be your greatest treasure. And they just blew it off, and they pursued the things of the world. And, and for unbelievers, that's, a, that's an eternal mistake that they make because they'll spend forever separated from God. But you know how many believers um, fail to do the things that God says? And then you read all the stories in the Bible about what happens when Christians disregard what God says about life. When their affection, instead of having an affection for God, they have an affection for this world. They have an affection for sinful things. And you can read all the stories in the Bible about how that impacts people. And um, so 
the Bible's super important. I, I just I want to read this verse before we jump into this because, you know, for most of us in this room, we're believers. And when we think about this, we think about the judgment coming on the world of unbelievers. And for, for most of us, that's not us. But, you know, we can still have problems. There still is application from this story in our life. I just think about John uh, 2.15, verse uh, 8 through 18. It says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So that's kind of a warning because if we actually love the world and, and our greatest passion and our greatest love and our greatest desire is not to please the Lord, sometimes that's because you're a believer and you've been distracted. But did you know that sometimes that's actually an expression of the fact that you're not a Christian? You know, Jesus talks about the wide and narrow road, and he says that, um, that the road is narrow that leads to life, and few people find it. And the road is broad and that leads to destruction, and many are on it. And so there's lots of people who sit in church who are on the wide road, and also part of the application for this for us is that we have family members, friends, and neighbors. And these family members, friends, and neighbors may say, oh, no, no, I'm a Christian, just like lots of people in church do. Oh, no, I'm a Christian. But when you look at them, when you look at their life, they love the world, they love the things in the world, and it just says the love of the Father is not in him. It says, for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the, life, uh, of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And, and the thing that we need to think about is that this story of Noah is a story about how the sinful world passes away. And, and while Jesus says through the Apostle John that the one who does the will of God lives forever, you know that's part of the illustration of this story because while the whole world passes away in the flood, Noah and his family does not pass away. God saves them. And it's interesting when you look at the New Testament and how the New Testament talks about this story. Um, Jesus himself, when he's talking about this story, he says everybody in Noah's day thought everything was okay. And then all of a sudden the door closed and they all drowned. And Jesus says that's just how it's going to be when I come back. You know, Peter, when he talks about this story, he relates this story about God drowning the world he relates it to salvation, that God has come to save people, but people who are not saved are going to be destroyed eternally. You know, this story actually in the New Testament is used as proof that hell is real and that God will send people to hell. Um, have you heard all that, this stuff now that God's so loving and he wouldn't actually send anybody to hell. And I read an article that a guy wrote who just says, you know, the Bible says God's really gracious. 
and it doesn't say he'll give you a second chance after you die, but who knows? He's gracious. Maybe he will. And so he kind of says that we could think maybe God will give people a second chance after they die. But actually, the New Testament says this is proof that nobody's going to get a second chance. And so we have this life to be right with the Lord. So that should give you a sense of urgency about the spiritual condition of your own life. And it should also give you a sense of urgency about reaching the people in your life that you love and care about, who their greatest affection is not God. Their greatest affection is their sinful world, their sinful pursuits. Their heroes, the people they want to be like, are all people who don't know the Lord. And so we should have a sense of urgency. <laughs> Noah was preaching for 120 years that they didn't listen. And one of the things we should think about is, are we preaching to people. So that's all framing the story. Ready to read some of it? All right, let's get in there. Let's check it out. Let's talk about some facts of the flood. The fa facts of the flood. Facts of the flood. You know, I want to point out three things. By the way, there's more, but I want to point out three big things. And the first one is that this is a historical account. And you know, if you want to find people who say that the flood is not a historical account, um, you can go to the non-Christian world and you can go to unbelieving scientists who they say there is no God and the flood never really happened. So, so that's one place you can go. You want to know where else you can go to find people who say this isn't a real historical account? You can go to Talbot Seminary. You know, they got professors at Talbot Seminary who teach that this didn't really happen. You can go to, yeah, there, there's, there's, you can go, in fact, um, the, the greatest percentage of people who believe that, that, that this account is real and historical, you know, they're average church people who sit in church. And you know why? Because you got a bunch of average church people who just sit and read the Bible. But if you want to go away to some higher historical, um, higher, higher educational institutions, you go to Fuller Seminary. That's a very well-known, huge seminary. You go to Talbot. Talbot used to be faithful. You can go to seminaries all over and find cr Christian professors. And by the way, I think some of them are Christians. I think they really are Christians. But they've bought into these lies about from higher criticism. They want to be accepted by the intelligent people. And so they'll say things like, Genesis 1 through 11 isn't real. It didn't really happen. It's a historical myth. It's just an illustration. And uh, as we read this, um, I just want you to know that if you believe that the Bible's God's Word, if you believe that it is inspired and that God wrote it, you're going to believe that this story happened exactly the way God says it happened. And so um, let's uh, just jump into here. It's a historical account. And uh, one of the things that I want to tell you as you read this, like there's this one really well-known person who as they talk about this account, they, they actually label it a historical myth. His name is William Lane Craig. And he, he labels this as 
um, a historical myth. So he didn't believe it's true. And I was watching one of his classes where he was teaching some people. Um, he, uh, William Lane Craig is an adjunct professor at Talbot, so he teaches there sometimes. But in his class, somebody said, well, hey, um, maybe the flood's real, but it's a local flood. It's not a worldwide flood. And you know what he says to them? He answers and just says, yeah, um, it would be impossible to actually read this and get the idea that it was a local flood. So that's not possible. It's definitely communicated to be a worldwide flood. And it's also definitely portrayed as a historical account. So let's come up with a new category, a historical myth. So let's throw myth on that, just label it myth. But it's interesting that in his class, he, he, he just tells people, you cannot read this story and come up with the fact that it's not worldwide. And uh, he doesn't believe that, but at least he reads this and understands that it's teaching that. So um, this is a historical account. God is the one who puts two of every kind of animal on the earth, and this is a worldwide flood. And uh, so let's just look at some of these things. His, Genesis uh, 7.1 um, uh, God puts the animals on the ark, and it just says, go into the ark, you and your household to Noah, because you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean. Do you know why um, God had him take on seven pairs of animals that were clean? So if you read the Old Testament, you know, what animals do you eat? <laughs> you eat clean animals. And uh, so he's saying you got to bring on seven pairs of animals. What would happen if you just brought two of every kind of animal and then when it was time to get off the ark, you ate a couple of them? <laughs> like that animal would then be gone, right? And so he's telling him bring two of every kind of animal so that they can reproduce. But the animals that you're going to eat and the animals that you're going to sacrifice to worship me, bring some extras so that you can eat them and so that you can sacrifice them and so that there will still be animals on the earth. So God brings them, uh, two of every kind, but, but 14 of all the clean animals and birds. And that's because God's providing. And then he says in verse 4 that I will send rain on the earth for 40 days, 40 nights. And listen to this. Every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. Like, is this a local flood? <laughs> no, every living thing. And then it just talks about Noah's obedience, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And then this is like, as you read through this story, think about all the specific details that are given that will, would never be included in a myth. Um, one of those is that Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. Noah and his sons and his wife, his sons' wives and him, went into the ark to, to escape. You know, it's going to talk about how old Noah was when he went on the boat, and then it's going to talk about how many days it rained, and, and then it's going gonna, it's gonna to give so many dates and times and months, and this is how long it took to go here, and this is how long it took to go there. When you read this story, 
those are not the kind of details that are included. You know, Genesis 1 through 11, like the whole section, it talks about people's ages and names and kids, and it gives genealogies. And these genealogies are, 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 are given throughout the Bible. You don't include those kind of details in mythical stories. There are no parables that Jesus told where he gave genealogies. And so this is a historical account. And um, then it goes on, it just talks about some other things. In verse 11, it says, in the 600th year of, his, of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, all these details. And then it says, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, it, it rained. But it didn't just rain the way it rains now. Like we recently have kind of seen a flood. We've seen some raining. Uh, have, any of you, have any of you guys seen like the freeways that look like rivers in L.A. and cars getting washed away? I remember the Antelope Valley. I was walking down the street and, and last time they had a flood and there was this car trying to drive down the road and the car with the people in it just got washed into this ditch covered with mud. Days later, they find this car with people in it. And so we've seen floods, but we've never seen a flood like this. You know, in creation, in the day of, of creation, Genesis 1-7, it says that God made an expanse and he separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God put water over the earth. Now, one of the things as you look at this whole account and the flood, it actually explains a lot of things that people would use to affirm evolution. A lot of the things that people would look at to try to deny um, the truth of the Bible, nobody lives to be 900. Nobody lives to be 600 years old. And one of the things that we find is that before the flood, the world was different. See, that's one of the faulty assumptions of evolutionists, and that is that however things are happening now is how they always happened. And we do know that Adam and Eve were perfect, and then they sinned, and so they're fallen, so their minds didn't work, their bodies started to break, but the healthiest, smartest people were Adam and Eve and the people who lived right after them. You know, every, this evolutionary mindset that people were primitive and they used to be dumb and they just kind of walked around and grabbed fruit, grabbed food and grabbed their women by the hair and drugged them and, you know, stuff like that. And then over time, we've become smarter and smarter and we've developed. None of that's true. The smartest, healthiest people were Adam and Eve and the people who came after them. And so part of the reason that we live a shorter life and have more disease is because of how sin has impacted the world. But that's not all. Something else happened. Because before the flood happens, people are living to be 900, 600, you know, they're living these really long ages. And right after the flood, people's age goes down significantly. There was something about all that water around the earth, and nobody knows exactly what it was that protected the environment, that fil maybe filtered out harmful rays of the sun. It changed how, our, how things were, how things functioned, how they operated. And when you take into account some of those things, a lot of the evolutionary dating goes out the window. And so a lot of the assumptions that people use 
to determine age are inaccurate because it was different before the flood and things have changed after the flood. And we see that with the age of mankind. Um, so, so rain is falling. All this water that God has put over the earth all comes down. It rains like it's never rained before. The fountains of the earth just break and water just starts coming up out of the ground. And it says, on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah and his wife, his three wives, they entered the ark. And when the, every beast according to its kind, now this is an interesting thing, when you talk about animals getting on the ark, now we're going to start talking about, could all the animals fit on the ark? Have you ever heard anybody say that all the animals couldn't have fit on the ark? You know, it's kind of interesting what what non-Christian scientists will do. They'll say there's millions of species and they never could have fit on the ark. But when they're saying there's millions of different species, you know what they're talking about? All the fish. They're talking about all the species of everything on the earth. Did God put whales on the ark? Did he put dolphins on the ark? No. So if you get rid of all the sea creatures and you just say, let's just talk about land creatures... Well, now how many species are there? And then when you start talking about what a species is, you know, we've got all different kinds of ways that we measure a species that's not the way God measures species. When it talks about a kind, what is a kind? So a kind of animal is basically an animal that it's a group of animals that could breed and reproduce. So you want to know what that means? It means that God didn't put two zebras and two horses and two donkeys on the ark. It means he didn't put a wolf, a coyote, a dingo, a German shepherd, a poodle. He didn't do that. Because all of those animals, I don't mean horses and dogs and stuff, but those categories of animals can all breed and reproduce. When you think about the races on the earth, every single race on the earth came from Adam and Eve. God put the genetic potential for every race on earth in Adam and Eve. And if you were to take every race on earth, and if you scientifically, you know, you know, specifically bred everybody together until you had a person that was an equal mixture of every race on earth, that would be Adam and Eve. And if you took the donkeys and the zebras and the horses and you took every kind of animal like that and you bred them together until they had an equal genetic dis, you know, dis distribution of all those animals, you would have the two animals that God brought onto the ark. And if you were to take the wolves, the coyotes, the dingoes, and all the dogs that we had and you bred them all together, you would have the two dogs that God put on the ark. And so when you actually do those calculations and you figure out if God was to put two of every kind of animal on the ark, how many animals would he put there? Um, it's not millions. It's, it, it, he would end up with about 16,000 animals on the ark. You know, I'll never forget when I was um, in elementary school and one of, one of my teachers said... Um, uh, the Bible's not true. Two of every kind of animal couldn't fit on the ark. And there was like this sense of panic that happened inside me. 
Because I thought, oh man, what if two of every kind of animal couldn't fit on the ark? That would actually mean that the Bible's not true and that we shouldn't trust it. And that kind of stressed me out. But then I thought to myself, if God knows everything, if God created the world, and if God didn't lie, and if God inspires the Bible, even though I didn't do the math, and even though I hadn't been able to figure all this stuff out, then two of every kind of animal must have been able to fit on the ark. Because if they couldn't, then the Bible's not true. And then we would have a lot of trouble. So um, let me tell you about the ark. The ark's big. Here, here's a picture of uh, Paul and Betty Sander, and they're in Kentucky standing in front of the ark. <clears throat> and uh, what, what they've done with this ark encounter is they've taken the dimensions and the details given in the Bible, and they've tried to reproduce an ark that's the same size as the real ark. Now, by the way, there's lots of details in the description of the building of the ark that we don't have. Like, we know how long it is and how wide it is and how tall it is, and there's some information that's given, but not everything's been given. And uh, just so you know, it's not just the Sanders that have been there. Um, I went there, too, <laughs> and I wandered around inside and took a bunch of pictures. One of the things that when I read about this that they talk about is some of the critics will say, yeah. I look at the hundreds of people building the ark and all the cranes and all the stuff that they used to build the ark. And then I read the story about Noah building the ark, and I think that's not true. And uh, you, know, you know what I think about? I just think about there are so many things that we don't understand about how people did things. You know, they don't know how the pyramids were built. There are so many things that when we look in ancient history at these, at these you know, uncivilized people that don't know very much, and we look at the stuff they made, and they go, we go, wow, this is amazing. How could this have happened? I remember when I was in Israel, I'm looking at this big rock in one of the walls, and they're talking about how much it weighs and the fact that there's no crane that could move it. And yet these ancient, unsophisticated people, they built the temple, and they built pyramids. And you know, I've never heard anybody say, yeah, we don't really know how the pyramids got there. I think that it just, you know, was like this random earthquakes and wind blowing and just erosion like uh, from, from dust and stuff and wind storms and, and these pyramids just kind of accidentally got here. You know, they're just like, it looks like somebody built them, but actually they weren't built. You know, nobody says that. They all go, Wow, obviously a human built this, but we just don't know how it happened. We don't know how they did this. And, uh, but one of the things that I think about is that, uh, so those are some of the silly arguments that don't actually make any sense, but Noah built the ark, and he had 120 years to do it, and he had his family, and there's nothing to say he didn't hire other people to help him build the ark. And so could the ark have been built? Certainly. Um, it was, uh, took 120 years. It was, so I, I did these calculations, and this is just kind of rough calculations, but if it, the ark is uh, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 50 feet tall, and it had three decks. But if you kind of adjust a little bit for how thick the walls might be, you know, and you're trying to come up with the internal dimensions, that's why I threw some of these on there. But the other thing is that a cubit is about 18 inches. 
But a cubit is the distance between your elbow and your fingertip. Like, that's a cubit. And so what do you understand about that? That's our measurement. Why don't we use cubits today? Because people are different sizes. And maybe Moses had really long arms. (laughs) So maybe the ark was big. Or maybe he had shorter arms, and maybe the ark was smaller than we think. But if we were just going to kind of average, the ark is... Um, about 95,703 square feet. Like, that's an estimation of how big the ark is. And so, um, when you think about how big that is, that is um, about 312 railroad cars. So, that's a lot of them. And uh, they would fit. By the way, I went on these. I, I told you, I went on the website. I'm looking up, you know, how much space does a cow take and how much space does a sheep take and all that kind of stuff. You could fit 38,019 sheep on, in that amount of space. Now, granted, that's the way that you would transport sheep. So you wouldn't want to live that way for a year. Have you ever been on the freeway and saw a truck driving with a bunch of animals in there? So you wouldn't want to live that way for a year. Um, but this is the other thing. You know why I picked a sheep? You ever heard somebody say, well, what'd they do with the dinosaurs? And what'd they do with the ele- elephants and all that stuff? You want to know what they did with dinosaurs? Uh, by the way, are dinosaurs real? Yes. Dinosaurs are real. You know the Bible talks about dinosaurs? In Job chapter 40 and 40 through 41, when God's bragging about how amazing he is, he's, he's describing all these animals, and he describes two dinosaurs. One's called Leviathan, the other one's called Behemoth. So dinosaurs are described in the Bible. And yes, dinosaurs are real. And, and this evolutionary mindset that dinosaurs existed long before people, not true. Um, God made the animals, and when Adam was naming the animals, that included the dinosaurs. When God built the ark and they put animals on the ark, you know, that included all the dinosaurs. They all went on the ark too. But the average size of an animal, think about an elephant, that's pretty big, right? And then think about a mouse, that's pretty small, right? Did you know that the average size of an animal is smaller than a sheep? So if you want to try to figure out how much space you need, including dinosaurs and elephants and giraffes and big animals, if you just want to figure out what's the average size animal, if, just calculate a sheep. Because that's the, that is larger than the average size of an animal. And when you think about that also... Do you think that when God was putting animals on the ark, he picked the full-grown old ones that had a shorter lifespan? Or do you think when God was putting animals on an ark, he said, I'm going to stick two of the small babies, the ones that were just born? Because number one, they take less space. Number two, they eat less. And number three, they're going to live longer. So if, if I'm going to try to repopulate the earth, I'm going to take young animals that have a longer lifespan so that they can breed and reproduce more. And so when you think about sticking animals on the ark, um, you're not even talking about putting full-size animals on the ark. And so this whole idea that all the animals couldn't fit on the ark, that's not true. 
Um, the sheep is larger than the average size animal, and it would take about 16,000 animals based on the calculation of kinds. And that includes, by the way, um, the people who calculated that. I want you to know I'm not an expert on how many animals there are on the earth, so that is something that I did look up. You know, I didn't come up with myself, that myself, I'm not that much of an expert, but I did check a bunch of different places that came up with it would take 16,000 animals to fit on the ark. By the way, um, when you go inside the ark, they have like pictures of pens. That's a dinosaur. That's like a baby dinosaur that they put on the ark. And uh, this, is, this is a different one, and they, you can't see it very well. I, I guess I didn't take pictures very well, but... <laughs> So let's just, let's just talk about these animals. Um, if you calculate that, you could put all the animals, the way they transport them on trucks, in 130 rail cars. That's about 42% of the space of the ark is how much it would take if you crammed all the animals in. Um, as far as food, um, that's about 12% of the ark would be enough food to feed all the animals for a year. Um, there's other ideas that people come up with, like maybe the, God made the animals hibernate. You know, God is in control of everything. He could have brought the animals on the ark. He could have had them hibernate. When you think about Israel wandering around in the desert, how'd God feed them? And he fed them with bread that fell out of the sky. Um, so as you read all these stories in the Bible, what, what's God's ability? The, the God who created the whole, earth, the whole world out of nothing, and he just spoke it into existence. You know, God could have done anything, like any kind of miracles to make this happen. By the way, the Bible describes miracles that God did. Having the animals two by two walk onto the ark, and then the 14 animals that were clean. So all kinds of miraculous things could have been done to make the story of the ark happen. But even without that, um, God's telling Noah to store the food. I don't think God sent manna onto the ark. I think he told Noah, store the food. And I think Noah stored the food. So if Noah had stored the food, like it says he did, it would take about 12%. 9% of the, of, of the ark would be taken for, with water. And that leaves 49% of the ark to give the animals a little more space and for them to walk around. So could two of every kind of an animal fit on the ark? Yeah, this is some pictures about how they might have stored food. By the way, the other thing that people talk about when it comes to knowing the ark is how are you going to get eight people to take care of all these animals? And so one of the things that they did is they figured out, if we were to go back to Noah's day, what are things that they could have done to deal with waste? Like think about how long would it take, um, you know, eight people to clean out all these animal pens with their waste. And so they came up with, um, could they have created something where they're, uh, could they have made a system where they like walk by and push something and, and where it's measuring food? Any of you guys have dog food dishes where you just, you push a button or have you ever been to a hotel where they have cereal and you pull a thing out and push it back and it fills a bowl? Um, you know, Noah could have very easily made things like that as he was building the ark. And very easily, um, these eight people could have dealt with waste, could have dealt with feeding the animals. When you think about, is it possible that what God says about the ark and the two animals, is that possible? You know, it's totally rational. We could just think about it and 
obviously this could happen. And aside from that, um, we believe God, right? We trust what God says about things. And when God says this happened, it happened. But, you know, that's one of the things about the Bible is when you really start scrutinizing and thinking about things, it all makes sense. And that's not to say that God doesn't occasionally do miraculous things. By the way, there's a story in the Old Testament about Hezekiah is talking to God and the prophet says, um, hey, how do you want to know that God's promise to you is true? Do you want the shadow to go forward on the steps or backwards on the steps? And Hezekiah says, I can't remember the forwards, backwards part. I'm forgetting that detail. But So let's just hypothetically say it was forward. Um, Noah, or, uh, Hezekiah says, well, if it goes forward, what's the big deal about that? That's totally normal. But if the sun went backwards, now that would be abnormal. When was the t- last time you saw a shadow go backwards? So, so he says, for God to show me that this is true, I want the shadow to go backwards. And guess what? The shadow goes backwards. Um, now, for a lot of people, they think about shadows moving forward and backwards, and they're just like, oh, okay, great, yeah, wow, great miracle. Um, think about it for a second, about what it would mean sure. for a shadow to go backwards. You know, why do shadows move the way they move? It's because the earth is rotating. Could you imagine what would happen to the earth if somebody stopped the rotation and moved it backwards? Like, have you thought about what the ocean would do? Like, what that would do to the... It would absolutely destroy the world. And also, how do you take a planet like the earth that's spinning and stop it and have it go backwards? Like, that's insane. And people would say, what? God could do that? I think, do you know why the earth spins? Because God decided it would spin. Uh, God made the earth. God made the orbits of every star. He made everything in the entire universe out of nothing. And so when we read the Bible and God says he did a miracle, and we think, well, how how did the earth move backwards without destroying everybody? Just because God decided it wasn't going to happen. God made natural laws. He's not a slave to natural laws. God made them. Do you know why gravity works the way it works? Because God decided it would work that way. You know, the Bible talks about how God is, and Jesus himself is holding the universe together. You know, it is miraculous that the star's orbits are orbiting the way they are. And they're not just happening. It's like we look at that and go, wow, well, there's a gravitational force and there's this and there's that. No, God is supernaturally preserving the world. He's making the world rotate the way it rotates. And if God decides, yeah, I'm going to stop the earth from rotating and also there's going to be no laws of momentum and water's just going to stay where it is, and everything's going to feel exactly the same to everybody. God made everything out of nothing. This is not hard for him. By the way, these are part of the things that we should think about. When you're going to work and you think to yourself, man, if I honor the Lord, I might lose my job. No. The God who made natural laws, the God who made the universe, the God who 
who keeps the sun and the moon and the stars and everything working, the God who allows you to live and, and has your blood pumping and, and, and everything in the world, it's like, no, this is the God we serve. And so am I afraid of people? That's why Jesus says, don't fear people who can kill your body. Fear God who kills the body and soul in hell. Like, who is it that we fear? Who do we trust? You know, when you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were told, bow down and worship this idol, or I'm going to throw you into a furnace, and no God can save you from me. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were people who read this story, and they thought about this story, and they understood what this story meant. And then they looked at the king, and by the way, they had also read stories about people who were persecuted and faithful believers who are killed. You know, God doesn't save every single Christian who takes a stand. There are people who get fired because they stand for what's right. There are people who are killed because they stand up for Christ. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they read all those stories too. And they just decided, God, I love you more than anything else in my life. And so what they did was they said, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, um, first of all, <laughs> our God can save us. Do you, do you know why they said that? They said that because they read the story of Noah and the flood, and they thought about the fact that God saved Noah, and they thought if God can save Noah, God can save me. And then they looked at Nebuchadnezzar and they said, but even if he doesn't save me, I'm not going to bow down and worship your idol. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, grab and throw them into the furnace. I wouldn't want to be those guards because they grabbed them. They threw them into this furnace. And guess who died? The guards died. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't die. And then Nebuchadnezzar looks inside and he threw three people in, but there was four people in there. And then when they come out, he says, okay, everybody needs to worship Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. And by the way, that's what happens when good-intentioned people say foolish things, like that this story isn't real, it's a myth. Um, that, that is many good-intentioned people who are foolish. The Bible means exactly what it says, and we need to read these stories, we need to understand them, we need to think about them, and we need to live in light of them. You know, this, this flood was worldwide. It says in verse 19, waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits. That's 22 and a half feet above the tallest mountain. How do you do that with a local flood? And uh, what about other flood stories? You ever heard this, that there's all kinds of flood stories, and the details all got changed. You know, there was cultures before Moses wrote Genesis, there were other people who had stories of flood, that had flood stories. You ever heard stuff like that? And so what happened is just, there's all these st stories going around, and the Israelites, well, they copied one of those stories and changed some of the details. And so this story didn't really happen the way it says it happened. Have you ever, have you ever heard that? You know, that's a foolish way <laughs> to interpret that. When you hear that there's flood stories everywhere, where could those flood stories have come from? 
you know, it's kind of interesting. I was reading next door the other day, and, and some people said, oh, hey, I, I saw a car accident, and there was nobody there. And then somebody else on a different post said, I saw a car accident on this road, and there were police, and a fire department was there. And somebody else said, oh, there was this traffic jam, but, but when I got there, there was nothing there. Like, were these people copying and modifying each other's stories? Or do you think maybe they all looked at the story and they were just communicating the same story at a different time? Have you ever heard the, the idea of stories that get passed down verbally? And, and you've all played the telephone game, right? Yeah. And the more you tell a story, the more it changes. And did you know that that's what the liberal people say about the Bible? Yeah. You know, these stories... They they were primitive back then, and they didn't know how to write. You ever heard stuff like that? I just want you to know Adam knew how to write. He's smarter than you, smarter than everybody else. Um, The written language was not something that evolved later. But what ends up happening is that in many cultures, I mean, people didn't write. They couldn't afford paper and pens, and so there was a lot of oral stories, and So why would there be so many stories of a flood? How about the fact that there was a real flood? And that every person that ever lived was related to somebody who saw the flood. So Noah and Noah's kids are telling their kids about the flood. Those stories are being passed down and passed down, which, by the way, one person did some research, over 200 stories of the flood. And so, yeah, of course you would expect that. You would expect there to be stories everywhere, and there are. But guess what? All those stories were polluted because it's like the telephone game where the details get changed. But when we read the account in the Bible, has our account of the flood been tweaked and modified? No. Why? Because God inspired it. When God had Moses write the story of the flood, there's no details that are wrong. If you want to know a polluted story of the flood, a flood that's kind of evolved over time, just go find any of the stories written anywhere in culture that are not in the Bible. If you want to know what actually happened, then you read what God said happened, which is recorded right here. Now, it's interesting, this guy you found 200 stories of the flood, um, 88% of them talk about a favored family. 66% of them talk about how they were warned that there would be be a flood. 66% of them say that it was due to the wickedness of man. 95% of them say it was a global flood. Um, 70% describe a boat. By the way, the boats have all different shapes and dimensions. Um, 67% talk about saving the animals. Um, uh, 57% say that the survivors landed on the top of a mountain. 7% record a rainbow. 13% talk about the survivors offering a sacrifice. And 9% say there were specifically eight people saved. Now, those stories are all polluted. They're all messed up. But it's amazing how many of those details got passed down. You know, the Bible tells us that all flesh died. We're going to go super quick on our last two, like a minute each. Um, Time ran out for people who didn't repent. 
It says, all flesh died that moved on the earth, and all mankind. You know that that's what um, a lot of people talk about when they, when they think about the world. They say you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the commandments of the Lord through the, your apostles, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And it goes on and it says... Um, they will say, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep and all things have continued as they were from the beginning. You know, one of the things about the story of the flood that we think about is so many people talk about, oh, look at the cute animals. There's two by two in the ark. Can you color in the zebra? You know, this is a story that we need to tell our kids, but we actually need to explain it to them and the, and the real point of it. And that is that God saves the righteous, but sin will be punished. And little kids need to learn that. Uh, we shouldn't scare them. We shouldn't stand them by the window and say, I wonder if God's going to drown everyone next time there's a storm. We shouldn't scare our little kids. But you want to know something? We don't sanitize what the Bible says. Uh, we help kids know God loves you, but God punishes sin. And as you're looking around and you're seeing a sinful world and you think it's all going to be okay, the story of the ark is that it's not all going to be okay for people who shake their fist in God's face. It says this, For if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You know, here's our third point. How was that for the second one? Here's the third one. Um, God cares about and He provides for people who are faithful to Him. That's what I want you to leave with today is don't look at sin and be attracted to it. Just be committed to be a person that loves the Lord and will honor God. Um, it says this in Isaiah 45, 9, This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore, the waters of Noah will no more go over the earth. I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. You know, God looks at, at Israel and says, I promised that I wasn't going to judge people the way I did in the day of Noah. And he, and he encourages them with that. You know, God has promised that he will not destroy the world with the flood. But you know that Second Peter passage that we talked about? God's not going to destroy the, the world with the flood again. By the way, that's the rainbow. Next time we're together, which won't be next week, it'll be in two weeks, we're going to talk about the rainbow and how that's a symbol of rebellion against God. But it's actually, the rainbow is a promise that God's not going to flood the world again. But in 2 Peter, it says he's not going to destroy the world with the flood, but he is going to destroy the world with fire, and everything's going to be dissolved with intense heat. And uh, it's so funny, if you read Genesis and you think about it and you read the Bible, you'll know what to do with global warming. And I just want to give you a hint, you don't need to be worried about global warning warming. It's not going to happen. The world is not going to be destroyed by that kind of global warming that comes from pollution. It's not happening. The kind of global warming that's going to destroy the world has nothing to do with pollution, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. And so the thing we need to remember, the story of Noah, everything in the Bible is true. God punishes sin but God protects the righteous. And so I just want to leave you with this. Who do you want to be? Um, who do you want to be inspired by? 
as you look around at the world, you're going to be attracted to Bill Gates and Taylor Swift and whoever else is famous and rich? Or are you going to read the Bible and think about the people that you know that love God, that have a reverence for God? And are you going to say to yourself, I want to be like that? And, um, and, and my question for you is, are you going to live the kind of life that when people look at you, they go, that's a person who loves God, who obeys God, who is faithful to God, and I want to be like them. Are you going to be an inspiring person like Noah, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Or are you going to look around at the world and love what is going to pass away? Let me pray. God, thank you for giving us your word, and God, I thank you for the encouragement. I just pray that you would help us to be people that love you, that are inspired to live a righteous life. God, I thank you for your grace, your forgiveness. Lord, just the fact that we know that there's nothing that we can do that you can't forgive. Our standing before you is not based on our righteousness. Lord, when we read the story of Noah's life, he was a sinful person. He did lots of things wrong too. There were lots of problems in his family. And yet, Lord, he was a person that on the base level, he loved you. He lived his life for you. He confessed his sin. God, I pray that you would help us to be people like that, that we would read the Bible, that we would learn the stories from it that we are supposed to learn from it. In your name, amen.